Hello, this is longtime Milwaukee radio personality Steve Pallack. Stand by, your next episode is queued up. The on air light is lit. It's season five of the Bait and Switch podcast. Welcome back to the Bait and Switch podcast. My name is Chris Beyer. As always with Jim, Jim, uh, COVID uh, number two for you, right? COVID number two, day two of COVID number two. Yep, yep, yep. You so, don't appear that bad. I, uh, You know what? It's the medicine. And of course, I had COVID a month ago or so. Yep. Our guest tonight is Bill Humphreys. Bill, you had COVID too. I did. I I, I just got back from Ireland uh, one week of riding, and hmm. Sunday I tested positive. It was a mild case. Oh, yeah. that's good. That's good. When did you say this one, Bill? Uh, about two weeks ago. I had the original. The OV, oh. the original virus. Yeah, I had it in October of 2020, the alpha or whatever they the call classic. it. The classic. COVID classic. Jim's a bit of a collector. He, he right. all the variants, he <laughs> right, wants them right. all. Yeah, Alpha, that's right. beta, that's right. delta, gamma, yep. uh, the, uh, Omicron. Yeah. Oneida, whatever, whatever, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Omicron, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, oh, but yeah. Okay. Well, you know, Bill Chris, Humphreys, <laughs> made aware of Bill Humphreys through a friend of mine, Joe Ludke, who I just found out that Bill works for. But Bill is somebody that's been involved in USA Cycling dating back to the early 70s. Bill, let's start out as a rider. When did you start riding? As a teen, I'm assuming? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, my actual first start in riding serious bikes was at age 27. Hmm. So why so late? I had partying to do. I had, you know, I had to, <laughs> I had long hair to grow. I had a beard sure. to grow. I had to go barefoot. I had things to do, you know. Yeah. And uh, w- then one day, and, and, the, and the story is this, I was a long haired hippie in San Diego, living in South Mission Beach, uh, doing nothing in particular, uh, working as a laborer and part-time bartender and not really much. And, uh, but I had towed my red Austin Healy all the way to California with my girlfriend, but it was attracting some attention. I got too many moving violations. Okay. And I had to go before the judge and the judge said, son, you know, you didn't show up for a lot of these and, <laughs> and we're going to take that license and, uh, and, and we're not, we're going to give it back to you in about three weeks. But if I ever see you again, you're going to lose it for good. Oh. And I thought, well, you know, uh, that license is the only thing between me and going over the deep end into the dark side because Mm -hmm. it it had my picture on it and it had a, I had an address. And when you get stopped late at night hanging out with the hippies and they all ask for your license and you have one that shows San Diego with your picture and your address right down the street. They go to the next guy who pulls out a cardboard license from Ohio with no picture, and that guy goes to jail. Okay, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> so I I knew that I had to keep this license, and I could cash checks with it. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, I told the judge that uh, yeah, I'm going to sell the car and I'm going to buy a bicycle because I've been eyeballing all the bicycles people rode because the weather was so good. You know, I came from yeah. Connecticut, I was living there, and I was uh, waking up to the, you know, sunny Southern California, and I realized, geez, you know, you could ride a bicycle year-round here. So I did. I, I bought a bike, and I had no idea where it was going to take me. I had not, no clue. I didn't know anything about racing. I just knew that uh, I rode it to work. I was a laborer. I'd ride 10 miles to work, and then I'd find myself riding the long way home. And when you got out of the beach and you got up into La Jolla and you got up by the USCD and you went, you went down into Del Mar, you were in the country. These were real country roads in 1971. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And you could hear birds. Okay. Yeah. And you didn't realize how crowded the beach was till you got out in the country. Mm-hmm. And I, and it was a real, uh, exploratory tool for me. It just opened up my, you know, my brain to what was available and my sense of smell and feel. And, and, and it started like that. And then every now and then I'd see these fast guys go by me with these black shoes and these mm-hmm. white socks and these black shorts and these jerseys, you know, right. on these slick looking bikes. I'd say, who are those guys? Who are they? What are they doing? They look fast. They look serious. Mm-hmm. And I finally caught up to them one day and they, they said, yeah, you know, we're the racer guys. We're the San Diego bike club. And, and, uh, we have a time trial that you should go to once a month. It's yeah. the AYH puts on a time trial at Shelter Island. You ought to come down and try that time trial. So the old athlete in me said, yeah, I ought to try that. So I stayed in on a Saturday night. Now this was, my friends were confused. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I got up the next morning and rode my clunker bike down to where all these guys were with their flashy bikes and their stuff. And I ended up beating some of the guys with the flashy bikes on my clunker, mm-hmm. nice. right? And my, nice. and my cutoff shorts and t-shirt, they were not happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Now you, you must've been an athlete prior to this. I was, I owe a lot to my high school track coach. Yeah. I was okay. a good track runner and I had a, I had a coach who was ahead of his time. He was the guy that inspired me. So in the back of my mind, I'm, I, I had been a good athlete and I kept thinking, I, I got to be able to figure this out. There's more to this than just being having a great engine. Right. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and, the, you know, and I couldn't figure it out and they weren't about to teach me. You know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a good looking specimen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Scaring some extra weight, had the beard going on, had my ponytail down in my middle of my back, you know, it was, I was suspect, you know, I wouldn't have paid much attention to me either. So, yeah. So things progressed pretty quickly because I see on your little resume here that you participated in 1973 world championships. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes indeed I did. And that, that was that, within how many years of that was of, a two and a, two years in two years. You went wow. from buying a bike to riding in the world championships yes. as a 29 year old, 27 year old. Yeah. I, I turned 28, right? I rode my, but I, the racing didn't, I mean, I, I had some success as a novice, Okay, because everybody was a novice. I could be in the top three. There could be a hundred guys show up in Southern California. You didn't know a lot about racing, but you had an, you had a heartbeat and an engine and you just stayed near the front and you just hammered away and you didn't know what was happening. And then you looked around and there was only three of you. So I, you know, <laughs> and then you got third. So, you know, I right. did that a bunch of times and then they said, well, we're moving you up. And that's when I totally lost it. I was riding against guys that were, you know, world class and i was like the cool. jump up was too big for me and i couldn't i couldn't progress so i said you know i still want to make a statement with this bike I, the racing's not working out i got to take a break it's it's playing with my mind i rode my bike across the united states to make a statement that i you know that i couldn't race but i still wanted to make a statement so i rode from right. san diego to quebec and then down to connecticut where my parents live and then when i entered a race in the fall <laughs> I wasn't getting dropped. I had plugged in this little affirmation in my mind going across Kansas and Nebraska and into Wisconsin and Canada that if I live, because traffic was, you know, bad in place, if I live through this, I'm going to be one hell of a bike rider. <laughs> if I live through this, I'm going to, I'm not going to get dropped when I start racing. If I live through this, that was going through my mind every day. So the next year, uh, that winter, uh, I decided not to go back to San Diego 
And I ended up getting a job as, as a ski bum in Sugarbush Valley, Vermont. And I cross country skied. I had a Norwegian guy teach me how to cross country ski. And I, and I actually did well in a couple of races before the winter came. So I had the confidence and I said, I'm going to go to Europe next spring and race. Okay. I had no right. idea, you know, what that meant, but I right. just knew that's where I wanted to go. That's where it was at. So I hear by now I'm, I'm 28. I, I save my money. I say goodbye to everybody in Sugarbush Valley. Uh, I get a haircut, which was huge. I had shaved the beard. Um, I see you're keeping it short these days, too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> then next thing I know, I'm, I'm at the World Championships. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you did your stuff as a writer. And then it looks like then you moved on to coaching and, and you coached uh, the U.S. teams, you said, uh, here at a race. But also it says you were a junior national team coach in 1978 and senior national team coach in 79. Greg LeMond was the big name with that uh, he was just a kid when you coached him obviously yes he was yeah and, and you talk uh, about big engines this guy had a huge engine yeah yeah we we recognized the talent you know instantly he was 15 i met i met him when he turned he was finally eligible for the junior world's championships he he was so good that when he was 15 he went to the junior world's trials in america right but he wasn't old enough to go to the worlds, but he could go to the trials. So he wins every race at the junior world's trials. He's 15. He can't go to the world's championships. So yeah. I meet him in the next year when he's on fire. He's like even better. It was a, uh, it was something we went to the world's championships, junior world's championships and he got ninth. We had like four kids in the top 20, which had never happened. That class of 78, uh, went on to win medals in the 84 Olympics. Greg turned pro before then. Uh, the rest of those kids waited till 84. They, they won medals in 84. They turned pro the next year. They rode the Tour de France like five or six times. They semi-retired, came home from the European circuit where they made money and had an incredible life. And there was enough racing in America and teams that they, they got paid to race the circuit in America in the eighties and nineties. It was huge, mm -hmm. big races, big money, a lot of sponsored teams. And these kids, you know, like in the farm league, winding down their career, they had fantastic careers. <laughs> they just, they lived all of the old timers like me. They lived our dreams and, and we, we got to see it. We, it was on our watch yeah. that we got yeah. to see this happen. That's fantastic. So, Bill, did you have a secret? Did you make them all ride across the country or something, you know, and, and really <laughs> contemplate their thoughts? <laughs> was there, I mean, was there anything that you learned, you know, along the way in your five or six yeah. years before that, that, uh, that really helped them progress? I, I guess they looked up to me because they knew <laughs> I, I was on the national team and that I, you know, had a great reputation. And I, I had that going for me just on the respect level. And the timing for me was that we, there was a Polish rider who had defected after the, I think it was the 74 World's Championships or the 76 Olympics. And he was discovered working at a body shop in New Jersey. And someone found him there and realized this guy was a coach and a great rider. Now, the Poles in his heyday, when I was racing, like at the Worlds, he was there for Poland. They were winning everything. They were telling American jokes. OK. All right. They were phenomenal. Them and the Russians and the Czechs were just killing it. They were beating all the Italians and Belgian kids. OK. 
So he was one of them, and he'd been through their sports medicine schools, which oh. in the Eastern Bloc countries were just phenomenal. And, you know, at, when you're on the national team in Poland, you get to have a car. Oh. All right. And you have an apartment. Okay. And this yeah. is like you're living large. Okay. I, I know his name. What's his name? Eddie Borsovich. Yeah, Eddie. I know. Yeah. So he had been discovered and became and, and became like one of the head coaches and, and was a wealth of knowledge. And I had just coached a team in, in Latin America. And then Eddie B was like the new coach when I got home. And people said, you've got to meet him. And he invites me to come to Colorado Springs and be the junior national team coach with him. Nice. So I walk into what is about to become the renaissance of, of real kick-ass racing internationally for America. I, I get there and I'm, I'm writing a book now and I'm on chapter 11 and I'm right there uh, where I meet Eddie B and he asks me. And I, at this point in writing chapter 11 chapters, I have to take a break because I want to be able to capture this properly. What's about to happen right now, and I'm in on the ground floor, is pretty amazing. And Lamond and that, that whole group was part of it. When you said renaissance, more accurately, it was just the genesis of American cycling, right? There you go. Although there was a tradition of track cycling and velodrome cycling in America back in the, what, 20s, 30s? Oh, my God. At the turn of the century, it was bigger than baseball. You didn't go to Yankee Stadium unless <laughs> you couldn't get a ticket to the uh, Newark velodrome. Then you went to see the Yankees. <laughs> so with that history of American cycling being so big at the turn of the century, why do you think it took so long for Americans to catch on to a European cycling? Well, that's a long story. But uh, ultimately, it was, number, it was bigger than baseball here. I mean, there, there was a black guy named Major Taylor, the first black world's champion of any sport, raced the bike based out of Chicago, based out of Indianapolis, he won $35,000 in like 18 or 1901 racing a bicycle. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's more than Ty Cobb. Yeah. yeah. You got it? So mm -hmm. now Americans can't, when you, when you go in the local sports bar and you start talking to Joe football, they cannot wrap their head around that. I love to pulverize them with that because they, <laughs> they, they don't even know what a bicycle is. And to think that a black man made any money racing in the 1900s. Then you tell them the story about the velodromes in Madison Square Garden. And there was a velodrome in almost every major city in America. They can't handle that. It was huge. The bike was the fastest form of transportation in the world. At that time, yeah. Yeah. So it was speed. So yeah. Americans love speed. So they, they caught on to this. This is the yeah. number one speed vehicle. We got to go watch this. So it was bigger. It was huge. And then with the advent of the automobile and the motorcycle, and then, you know, we're talking World War One. Right. It started to decline. Mm -hmm. And then the motor and, and then you got the depression and right. then you got World War Two. So cycling just kind of just, you know, disengaged. And, and and the promoters were getting out a little bit out of hand, too. They were contributing to some of the some of the strife and so forth. But uh, so it was huge in an era that, you know, was appropriate and it faded. Now, all of those guys ended up in bike shops and those old six day riders were the only ones left to pass the torch. But yet it wasn't very popular. So it was a very subculture sport when I got into it. It was starting to get some recognition every time an Olympics rolled around. It got popular. Right. And the track, and the track got some TV time, the velodrome. And 84 was Alexi Graywall. The, he won the yes. gold. Yes. And he was, was one of my juniors, too. He was the year yeah. behind Lamont. That was, uh, that was the Los Angeles Olympics. Yes. 
Yeah. So you got the combination American Victor on American soil that probably kickstarted things. It helped. Uh, Lamond helped more than that. And also Eric Hyden winning five gold medals in speed skating picks up the bike and almost makes the uh, 1980 Olympic team. That's right. Yeah, that's Eric right. Hyden brought a lot of attention to the sport. I raced <laughs> against Eric. I coached with him and his sister. He brought a lot of attention to the sport. Yeah. Did Bonnie Blair bike also? Yes. Oh, Bonnie was okay. unbelievable. Yes. I, th- I thought I thought I heard that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys are right up there from that Northbrook Kenosha area. Yeah. What a breeding ground for speed skaters and cyclists. Yeah. I mean, and those, I, that's that was the hotbed. Right. Uh, a friend of mine, Mary Doctor, you might know her as well. Oh my gosh. Yes, she was part of the the team I used to coach. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cyclist and uh, and speed skater mainly. Yes, and she. Oh my God, she was uh, she was a powerhouse. Yeah. 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 So we're moving into uh, the mid '80s. Lamond is uh, there's a famous uh, inter rivalry within his team with Bernard Hino. Yes, and uh, then he breaks through and wins in '85, I believe. '86. '86, and then he wins '87, I think. Yep. And then he gets shot. Yep. Uh, did you did you know him during that time when he was injured? Yes, I, I kept in touch with him all these years. He's been to my house, and uh, and I've been to his house for dinner, and, and it's been a pretty special relationship. There was an implication by Lamond, say, in 90. He won his third one in 1990, I believe. Yes. And then 91, 92, he was kind of implying like something different is going on in the Peloton. And by that something different, obviously doping is what, what he was kind of hinting at. And then uh, Armstrong kind of said the same thing. But 93, 94, doping became more mainstream. He, uh, Armstrong talks about two levels of doping. He talks about, um, I forget what name he gave him, but the initial one is kind of cortisone and steroids. And then the second one is the blood boosting drugs, EPO, and uh, transfusions and whatnot. Did you see an evolution of, of doping uh, during your time in terms of you know riders using and abusing drugs? Okay. In, in my era, we weren't, we weren't using much at all. The late sixties and seventies in America, you know, it wasn't competitive to the point where you really had to take something extra. There weren't big contracts, but it, it started to creep in. And, and when American guys went to Europe on their own in the late seventies, uh, and joined a club and started racing with clubs over there, they ran into it because right. Kids needed to take something to make it into the pros. And if they made it into the pros without taking something, it wasn't long before the doctor sat down with them and said, you know, it's time we introduce you to this program we have to make sure that you're fast enough and can ride all the races. Right. So, so they would come home and, and some of them would, 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 would make the decision to do it. But the one, a lot of them just said no. And, I, and they came home and, and continued to race here, uh, but they never saw their dreams because they just chose not to dope in Europe. Yeah, I personally believe that, you know, cycling gets a, a black eye with doping, but I personally believe that uh, doping is probably equally rampant in every sport, whether it be hockey, baseball, basketball, football, whatever you want to say, because money is involved and livelihoods are involved. Right. One thing about those of us, that aren't Nikki new guys, guys that from my era, okay, that have been in the sport in the 70s and the 80s, all right, and were racing even if they were amateurs in the early 90s. 
It's been part of the sport since the six-day races in Madison Square Garden in 1899. It's always been there. And one thing that's a real problem with Joe football, okay, and I was so I, I was not glad, but I got some redemption when these baseball pitchers and these guys started getting popped. And then I would say to Joe Baseball sitting next to me at the bar, what was that you were saying about cycling? Yeah. What were you saying, right. sir? Excuse me. What did you say about dopers? You know, because mm-hmm. they just thought, you know, they were naive. American sports fans have no idea. If you told them anything about the race Perry Roubaix and you made them go over there and watch it and stand in a field full of mud at 40 degrees, drinking Belgian beer and not drinking Bud Light right. from 10 a.m. <laughs> until five in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And they saw the craziness that was going on in front of them on those cobbled roads that Napoleon used on a bicycle with tires this big. And then you sent them home. When you walked into that bar in July and said, hey, bartender, turn on the Tour de France, Joe Redneck Football would say, yeah, bartender, let's see a real sport. And so Anka Teal and the guys that have won the race five times and 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 uh, they will tell you, you don't win the Tour de France on milk and toast. Mm-hmm. They all had amphetamines in their back pocket. I mean, yeah. there was just no way. So how do you tell an American? The reason we don't is because the sport is so freaking hard mm-hmm. that you cannot get anywhere unless you do. And then you have to explain to them the Tour de France. They can't comprehend the Tour de France. What do you mean you race a bicycle 25 days, 2,500 miles over the Alps and the Pyrenees, okay, and that they crash and get up. They don't crash, and they don't have to go to acting school like the World Cup soccer players to fake an injury. (laughs) I mean, the kid crashes yesterday on uh, last week on the cobblestones. He gets in a chair and puts his shoulder back in. Yeah. And climbs back on his bike and rides the rest of the day and he's still in the race. How do you tell Joe football that? Gee, we might take a little bit of dope every now and then you. Asshole. I mean, yeah. it's just so far beyond Americans. And, and for me, I've been involved in the sport 50 years and I know I'm going to go to my grave. America's still never going to know anything more about cycling than they do right now this day. Yeah. It's just never going to happen. I've heard never uh, going to happen. They said that uh, if you want to know what uh, crashing a bike is, uh, get in your car, go 40 miles an hour, strip down to your underwear and jump out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so that, that, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of pressure over there. Of course, Armstrong took it to the 10th degree. Oh, you're going to dope. Well, let me show you how to do it. You get organized. You get a three three million dollar consortium surrounding me and my team. We get the best doctors. We have buses, we have refrigerated units in the saddlebags of all the motorcycles so they can carry the blood up into the mountains. And, and this is how we do it. We pull the bus over the side of the road and we drip the bags and we do the transvision on this day and swear everybody to secrecy. And if you don't do it, then he throws you off the team. That's how far you can go. And he, he made it a science. They said, yeah. oh, is this how you play it? Oh, well, we're Americans. Oh, we have a bigger budget than you. Oh, we'll show you how to do this stuff. Yeah. Now, you've done other things uh, in addition to coaching. You worked as a swanier, a race promoter, a sponsor. Tell us about some of those things. I, I always wanted to be involved in the promotion of the sport, the marketing and, and the uh, uh, race promotion. And there were no, there were very few avenues. And when I retired, you know, in, in say like 1979, 
the, the Red Zinger Classic, which turned into the Coors Classic in Colorado, was a huge event. I lived in Boulder. He only used part-time people. I was looking for my avenue. But I said, in the meantime, I have to stay involved in the sport. So I'll become a coach and a soigneur and learn more about the sport and get more contacts. The soigneur thing, which is the trainer to care for, the French term, I helped pioneer that position, which has always been in existence in Europe and was existence in the, in the six days in America. I had the opportunity to learn about massage, learn about vitamins, learn about nutrition, learn about all the clothing you have to wear, how to sleep, all of that stuff with coaching. So I took that and I became the soigneur and I'm learning about European racing. Before I know it, I'm in Switzerland and I'm racing, I'm, I'm working the big races, the big amateur races and all the ex pros that were my legendary guys are coaching their amateur teams. So I'm in the middle of it all, and I'm doing massages, seven massages a night. I'm preparing the water bottles for the guys. I'm preparing the race food for the guys. Uh, you know, it's 16-hour days, and you're learning, and you're meeting everybody in the sport. I walked away from the training center in 79. I came back after eight weeks in Europe. I, I knew more than anybody in the country on how to be a soigneur. And uh, we got to the training center and I heard about the Olympic boycott was coming up for 1980. And I was in line to be the soigneur for 1980. And I just said, I can't wait another four years to be the soigneur. I'm going to move on to promotion now. And that took a while, but that was, that was my goal. So I used it as a stepping stone and uh, found a partner and we started producing races. And uh, we did quite a few and there were some big ones and some lot of cash involved. And we brought Europeans over to America to race and we promoted tourism, Florida through that. And, and that was a whole nother venture. Uh, another local cyclist in the Milwaukee area that missed out in the Olympics due to the boycott, which was Brett Emery. You might yes, know him. I know Brett very well. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. Uh, he like I said, he missed out in 80. He did not go back in 84, did he? Yes. He got he a was, medal in 84. He got him. Okay. Well, I stand corrected. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. Great guy. Yeah. 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 And of course, Tom Schuler, our other guest, you've run in his circles. Yes. Tom and I, we met and I made sure he got to meet Joe and, uh, and Tom and I had breakfast together in Milwaukee. I ended up coaching while well, managing him. He already knew how to ride, but I was a manager coach for a couple of teams. And Tom was a prolific winner. I mean, he was without a doubt big winner. He won the U.S. National Professional Road Race Championship. He won just about every race in the country that he entered it by the time his career wound down. He had a phenomenal career. And, yeah. uh, and then as a race promoter and a team manager, he, he was without, without doubt one of the best there was. Yep. He does uh, the Tour of America's Dairyland now. That's his. Yeah, and he's brilliant. He's totally brilliant. Yep. You talked about meeting a lot of uh, uh, the names that you idolized. Did you meet Eddie Merckx? Oh, several times. Been to Eddie's house a few times, had breakfast with him, yes. Oh, yeah. Eddie Merckx is, uh, for our non-cycling-related uh, <laughs> listeners, is the Michael Jordan of cycling. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, Good to know. Thank you, Chris, for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's how you have to relate it. You know? yeah. I mean, you know, back in, my, in the 70s, the trivia question to Joe Football then was, who's the third most famous athlete in the world? Well, they hated to say Muhammad Ali, right? you know, but they, they did because right. it was true. And then it was Pele. Right. And then it was Eddie. And they said, who? And I'd say, yeah, gotcha. Right, right. You know? yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It's funny, you know, uh, I'm looking at your, um, you know, all the, all the information we have on you here. And I see that uh, you are the marketing manager of, for Bicycle Magazine. 
it, as I was looking through this, I saw all this cycling stuff and I thought, oh, and then marketing manager, like, well, I wonder how that was. Like, did he have a marketing thing? And, but now just hearing you talk about cycling, I can see like, you don't really need <laughs> any, any marketing background or any sales, anything. I mean, it's just, it's clearly a passion of yours and clearly uh, in your blood. So yeah, I'm not even going to ask, how'd you get into marketing? <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, uh, I, uh, the quick story <laughs> is uh, I, I ran out of tricks after promoting bicycle races in Florida and so forth. I decided to go back to school. I wanted to get back into cycling. And the only way I could do it was to get a degree. I wanted to jump into the industry at a mid-level job. I, you know, I didn't want to be a sales rep, which was easily available to me. So I went back to UMass Amherst. They had a division there called University Without Walls, where you get credit for your life experience. Oh, if you can write the thesis and they teach you how to write it and it goes before a board who analyzes your thesis, which mine was 120 pages, wow. they vote on how many credits you should get. So you get a PhD and, or a master's, which one are they? Well, with? I was teaching there before I left. I'll say <laughs> yeah, there that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. That was validation for me to be inside a university. I had, you know, with only the bike as my background. And to go to a university that had the number one sports management school in the country and to sit down and meet your counselor, who was going to be your supervisor, who had written three or four textbooks on sports marketing, who was a consultant for the Cleveland Cavaliers and for the New York Giants football team, to sit down at a desk with him and for the first time in, in selling all those sponsorships and selling all those bike races, to have somebody look, look at you straight across the table, dead even, and totally respect your background. Yeah. And when I was there for a year and a half, he said to me, I read your stuff, Bill. How many credits do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I got a whole bucket full. Just take them all. <laughs> so, so that's, uh, how I, that's yeah. great. Well, that's yeah. cool. How about uh, the current crop of American cyclists? Who's the one that's going to be the best down the road? Well, it, that's a tough one. Um, there's some great programs and there's some great juniors. Uh, there's some really good solid programs. The racing program in America on the road racing side of things is very weak at the moment. Okay. But the criterium circuit is very strong, which is easy to market. And the track racing program at the Olympic train is very strong. So even though we may not be quote unquote as popular in the Tour de France and, and, and the buzz sport like it was with Armstrong. He made the sport very popular and penetrated the, you know, the Grand Fondo and the participation level and sold a lot of bikes. Although that's waned and now it's, now it's settled and strong. Our programs are still good. Um, people are complaining about the lack of big races in this country. And I can't argue that, that that's true. <laughs> but we've got seven kids in the Tour de France now. Yeah. And there's been years where we've only had two or three. You know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and those guys are strong and, but they're not the future, you know, I mean, but some of them are young. I mean, some of them are 19, 20, 21, 22. Mm -hmm. They're over there racing the Tour de France. So our program is, is, uh, is still good. The junior programs and our amateur programs in Europe are still strong. So our feeder system is back in place. What about, uh, we mentioned Armstrong. Uh, you, you knew Lamont well. Did you know Armstrong well? I got, I got to know him, uh, when I worked at Bicycling Magazine. I, uh, he had an event when he was coming back from cancer called the Ride for the Roses. And I made sure that the magazine was involved and I, and I got Subaru involved, which he eventually endorsed them. I have pictures of, believe it or not, well, you can't, but of Greg Lamond 
and Armstrong and I, my arms around both of them and both of them laughing. Okay. Now, that was a very short lived period. I think, yeah. that was, I think that was that, that period ended about 20 minutes after that photo. <laughs> right. We had a team mechanic, Bill Woodall, that was the premier mechanic and an, an incredible guy that I traveled around the world with. I mean, he did wheel changes for me when I was racing. I retired. I was in the van with him helping do wheel changes. We went to Europe. We went to Latin America together. He was so well known and he helped so many different generations of riders as a mechanic on the back of a motorcycle and just a, an all around great guy that everybody loved. He got cancer and uh, even Lance uh, knew who he was because when Lance was a junior, Bill was involved with him. He was dying and he got back to the States and he was in a hospital in Houston and my phone rings at, at, at bicycling and it's Lance because he, you know, he was told that Bill Humphreys can tell you what, what the situation is with Woodle. And he called and we got to know each other on the phone. And, uh, and he emailed me several times and called me once from Europe, uh, to see how Bill was doing. So we got to know each other then. And then, and then he knew I was involved with the sponsorship of his event. So, okay. uh, yeah. So you, you get a lot of riding in these days. I'm getting out like five times a week. Yes. You're still I, riding the old beater or you got a nice I, one? There? I, I, I finally told my wife, I didn't tell her actually. I just said, you know, uh, you're 77. It's time you're riding the bike you really want. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, you know, and, and that doesn't mean it's a $16,000 Pinarello, the bike I want. And I just said, it's time to go get, you know, yourself another titanium light speed. And so that's what I'm riding. It's a, it's a gravel bike, but a gravel bike can be a road bike without any difficulty. Just change the tires or the wheels and you got yeah. a road bike. So I'm real happy on that. And I, and I'm riding, I'm going to do some gravel events. I did some gravel right rides last year i'm going to do a couple more this this year that's uh part of the future of cycling to get car get bikes away from cars right yeah yeah i'm not heavily on, involved in the advocacy but a lot of my friends are and it's yeah it's happening, it's happening. yeah well when are you going to come back to walk i didn't get to ride with you last time i know we gotta i gotta get back out there you gotta talk to joe i mean you know all right <laughs> well Bill, Bill, one, one last question yeah, real quick ahead. did yeah. you uh did you catch our Tour de France podcast, preview podcast. Just Send me the link for that. Yeah, sure. It's me, Chris, uh, Tom Schuler. Oh, great. Uh, uh, Chris's son, Will, is, is big into cycling. And, uh, and uh, our friend, Mitch Tyke, who's an uh, NPR guy in uh, upstate New York. Oh, no kidding. It's yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Send me the link for that. I'd love to hear it. Uh, Trump, Jim here. One last question before we say goodbye, because we've got another guest coming. Who's going to win the tour, Pojakar or anybody else? <sighs> He's going to have a tough time these next two weeks. I don't think his team can protect him all the way. And, uh, but, but I, he is, he's still the favorite. Everybody knows that NUS uh, Grenadiers have three guys right there. Everybody knows that there's more guys uh, within two minutes of them than there ever was before. It's stacked against him, but uh, you got to put a hundred dollars online. You bet for him or the field? Uh, boy, I hate to. He's a great kid, but I'd go with the field. All right. Interesting. Bill Humphreys. We met Bill through Joe Lipke. I don't know if I said that to start with, but Joe's a good friend of mine. And I want to thank Joe for setting up this meeting. And I want to thank Bill for coming on our show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Join us next time on the Bait and Switch podcast when we preview the upcoming Packer season with our friend Jeff Grayson.
you've made it to the end of yet another Bait and Switch podcast. Spread the word.